Another thing you're going to be pumped for as we stand to our feet is to hear from the Word of God. So I encourage you to get us your feet as we welcome our location pastor, Pastor Timothy George, to the stage to bring the Word. How awesome is Joel? We love you, Joel. What a great servant. Am I right? While you're on your feet, we, uh, we uh, give our best praise to God. Amen? So let's... I'm going to do a countdown from three to one. And then on, on, on when I say one, let's just lift a shout for God. Yeah. All right? Three, two, one. Praise you, God! Woo! We love you, Lord. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. Lord, you fill us with passion and energy, God. Every time we search you, Father, every time we get to know you more, God. Oh, my goodness, you're so big. You're so exciting, Father. God, we just pray today as we worship you, God, as we hear your word, God, that we will be so receptive, that we will be so open, Father. We love you, God, and we can't wait to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. That's how you start a preach. Energy. All right, grab your seats. That was a team effort. Romans 2.11 God does not show favoritism. Just let that sink in for a second. God could have you and the most famous preacher in the world on this stage right now and not show favoritism between you. I just find that so amazing. Another way of wording that would be to say that we are all God's favorites. I actually prefer that way. <laughs> what a good father. I've had my children come to me before and say to me, they've already started it up, Dad, uh, which one of us is your favorite, you know? You've got to pick. If you had to pick, you know? I think I've told you before that my dad's answer to that was always your mother. <laughs> she predates you, <laughs> um, which I thought was pretty good. Not at the time, but... Um, but it's this innate question we've got, you know, am I special, you know? And a good father, like, here's a something, here's a mystery about love. Love is infinite. And so it can be multiplied without losing any of its infinity. That's the amazing thing about infinity. You can give it and give it and give it and give it and you never run out. Love is a miracle. It's a miracle. And I find that, you know, sometimes this idea that God doesn't show favorites, you know, and it's of course epitomized in the fact that Jesus was standing there alongside us and that God allowed his son, who should be his favorite, to take our suffering. It's epitomized there. But for those of us who are striving to excel in our ministries, it seems like a little bit unfair that we don't get to be the favorite, doesn't it? But for those of us who are wasting in complacency, 
it also presents such a challenge. Such a challenge. Mankind was in our mere second generation from Genesis when Cain in his heart accused God of playing favorites in his heart. And God being the good God that he was, he intervened in order to show Cain that he cared and to address that misconception. Genesis 4-7, God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Or in other words, let me simplify it. The question isn't who you are, it's how you are. Okay? It's not who you are. Who you are is fine. You're a favorite of God even. We all are. But it's how. It's what you do with that. See, God's a mystery. I find God a mystery. Anyone find God a mystery here? I love it. I love that he's a mystery. I can't understand him. It's great. He enjoys creating us all unique. But the other thing that God loves doing is grouping things together. There's no two flowers, no two mountains, no two people that are ever the same. It blows up mathematicians' head. One plus one, and it's like there's no such thing as one. No two things are the same. Do you understand what I'm saying there? It blows our minds, the variety, the creativity of God, the infiniteness of that. But God loves to categorize into, into gender, into race into families, into tribes. Here's, here's when he began categorizing with man, a man named Abram. He renamed to Abraham and he started creating a special race of people, but not favorites, just special, just chosen. That's fine. You can choose, without, you can choose an opportunity without that being your favorite. I can give one of my kids a chocolate as a reward. That doesn't mean they're my favorite child. It's just an opportunity that I'm giving them. From there, we see that God chooses another man. His name's Jacob. And God renames him again, this time to Israel. And from his 12 children emerge 12 tribes that we know from Israel. Now, if you were a critic of Christianity, at this point, you might be asking all of us here, why are you a bunch of Aussies and co.? why are you pretending that you're Jewish people? But God, knowing the pride in man's heart, addressed this even in his law in Leviticus 24, 22. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be the same for the stranger as well as for the native, for I am the Lord your God, not just the God of the Jews, the God of everyone. In the law, we see time and time again, he accounted for the stranger who would seek to know him, who would seek to come under his authority. Or in other words, to paraphrase that law, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? We can't blame God for pushing us away. We can't blame him for favoritism. It comes back to whether we enter into relationship with him. It comes back to us. I find it hilarious that when Joshua was approached by an angel, 
in Joshua 5.13, he asked, uh, he asked what every child ever asks when they go for the first time to a, a playground. <laughs> yeah. Are you for me or are you against me? You see it with kids at playgrounds. They meet someone they've never met and they, they have this unspoken question. Joshua literally asked the angel this. Are you for us, God's people, or our enemies? And to which the angel replies, what? Neither. Say, what? God, we're your people. You're supposed to be for us. It's not about us or them. It's about God. It's not about whether God's for us. We're for God. (laughs) Do what you want, God. We're for you. You just tell us where to go and we'll go there, right? Okay, good. We're on the same page. Now, as as the youngest of six children, I've always been in someone else's footsteps. And uh, as a child, literally, I was wearing the hand-me-down shoes, all right? And to make matters worse, I come from a family of overachievers, and it was the worst thing. The shoes were always just too big for me. And I, people used to say to me, it must be hard having such a godly sister as Amanda. That's what they used to say to me. And I used to be like, thanks? You know, and then you kind of just like stumble away and have this existential crisis. Who am I? Who am I? She's the godly one. I better be what? The black sheep was already taken, so, you know, I just kind of took off, you know. (laughs) But, you know, when it comes to, today we're talking about personality. And when, when it comes to personality, your families play such a crucial role. And, you know, it may not bind you up forever, but it can bind you up. And our parents, who partnered with God in creating us, they had some role to play in all that. You know, if... They can only have two personalities. Your parents can only have two personalities. There's, there's an inf- our God's infinite. There's an infinite amount of spirit. We all have a different spirit in us. And your parents, how they treat you when it comes to your difference will determine how freely you can move in who you are for such a long time, possibly even forever. Possibly even I don't want to dwell too much on there, but I did have my dad come and visit me. <laughs> uh, I had my dad come and visit me. I love my dad. He's great. Love him. But as a child, I did feel like I couldn't be myself, like I had to be something else. And likewise, in the church, I felt this unspoken pressure. I couldn't be me. I had to conform to a good loving Christian or more impossibly still I somehow had to be Jesus or pretend that I was ever felt that ever put that kind of pressure on yourself this is simply not true our personalities are precious mysteries And within them, they contain not only the clues to your calling, but also a facet of the very image of our beautiful God 
And I can tell you this, that it's in relationship with Jesus that our personalities, it's the light of Jesus that our personalities begin to bloom and unfold. And of course, in the presence of the Holy Spirit's influencing our life. I want that point to be really clear in your head. Honestly, if you walk away from today, I haven't even got to the body yet, but if you walk away from today and that's the last thing that you remember, that who you are, the very essence of who you are is a mystery for you and your creator to solve together, then then I've done my work. That's it. Remember that bit. All right. So I'm going to be talking about strategies for four different personality types in approaching and entering into relationship with Jesus. And that's the longest intro ever. Awesome. I I literally wrote that here. I knew that was going to go for a while. All right. Everyone got a pen? Ready for this? The first strategy is called Mark. Hi, my name's Mark. John Mark. Interesting fact about me. John is the most common name for Jewish people. And Mark is the most common name for Greek people. So that's me, a commoner. Except for one little thing. I'm compulsive. I just can't help myself. I love God so much. I love meeting amazing, spirit-filled teachers and leaders. When I'm in church, I'm just taking down a million notes as Pastor Peter preaches. And there was this guest preacher, this one time, this guest preacher. His name was Paul. You might have heard of him. And as he was speaking, I was just getting so fired up. Me and my cousin Barnabas were like hitting each other on the back. That's for you, man. That's for you. And then, in my excitement, I may have just written my name, signed myself up to go on a missionary trip to Cyprus. But suffice to say that the reality of ministry was so much harder than I had ever imagined. We were always traveling, hungry, homeless. Even when I would meet people, I would beg them to hear the truth about God. And they hated me for it. Even demons attacked us. I don't know. You hear those sermons, but then sometimes when you step out and you try and do it yourself, you just feel like a fake. And then one day, I was feeling all this stuff, and then I was having this argument with Paul. And that was the last straw. That was it. I just gave up. Went back home. Do you know this? I, I saw Jesus once. I was, it was in the middle of the night. I, I, I could hear this loud sound out in the street. So I went out to see what it was and there were people dragging him away. And I swear to you, I swear to you that I tried to stop them. But they went crazy. They, they ripped my clothes off. 
I literally ran home naked. That's me, John Mark, compulsive coward. Here's something weird though. Ever since I've got back from Cyprus, I'm just not the same anymore. I can't explain it. I still love a good sermon, but I can't just sit there and listen anymore. I've got to do something. And so I've began taking down all those notes. Remember, I take notes. So I took all of my notes and I compiled them together and I'm writing down the life of Jesus. I might just be average. I'm not even that great a writer. But it feels like what I'm doing is really important. Like maybe even that's why I came back home in the first place. And that's John Mark. Albeit with a slight poetic license. Not even one of the core 12 disciples quickly learned that his ministry was not in his own efforts. But then while everyone else was busying themselves establishing the church, he was overcoming his fear and inadequacy and he was focusing on Jesus. Consequently, Mark was blessed to be the first one to write down the life of Jesus. Some 33 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. What were the church doing, people? First thing after Jesus died, surely you'd just be like scraping every memory. Getting it out there as fast as you can. 33 years later, and it's some nobody named Mark who gets the honor, the privilege, just because he was willing. This guy, by all man's standards, by the world's standards, had failed in his ministry. He'd gone to do missionary work, and for some reason, they say it was for fear, that he came back home, tail between his legs, and yet God used that man to write the story of his son, the best story, the greatest story. That's John Mark. That's who God can use. If God can use John Mark, surely he can use us that have a mustard seed of faith and bravery in our hearts, right? (laughs) The name Mark means warlike. Likewise, we see within the gospel of Mark, it's a book of courage, of faith and action. And it inspires the reader to fight the good fight, to follow Jesus. Remember, that's what Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. Mark inspires us to follow Jesus even through our own inadequacy. Matthew. That's my next strategy. Matthew. You might be seeing a bit of a pattern here. Come on, guys. Pep it up. Bit of fun in the house. Bit of fun. All right. Before Jesus commissioned Matthew, also called Levi, to join the 12 disciples, Matthew had worked for the Romans collecting, uh, collecting their taxes and profits from his fellow Jews, which had afforded him money and power. Albeit 
at the expense of his reputation and patriotism. Being a tax collector had also equipped Matthew with the ability to keep records and the education to be able to write. These things are powerfully evident in the Gospel of Matthew. 52 years after Jesus' death, in stark, com- in stark contradiction to Matthew's reputation as a traitor of the Jewish people, he designed his gospel with the express purpose of bringing Jesus to the Jewish people. He takes the time to put 120 Old Testament references into his gospel. He turns over every stone to show the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled so that no Jew could argue that Jesus was the Messiah. He proved it. Oh, 130 quotes, sorry. The name Matthew means gift of God and Levi means joined. See, at the beginning of Matthew's life, we see that for, for his personality, it's what we're talking about here, that for his personality, he desired power and reputation. Can you see it? But his gospel reveals that when he encountered Jesus' life, when he represented Jesus' life, that it was only through accepting that he was joined to the Jewish people and deferring all glory off himself to Jesus that he could achieve his true purpose. And that's Matthew. Third strategy is called Luke. Luke was a truth seeker, a Greek physician with the highest level of Gentile education. He had a successful uh, practice. He was a physician and had a, a successful practice in Antioch until he encountered this apostle named Paul. Again, Paul's just going around creating trouble everywhere. Don't smile, Moses. (laughs) And once once this Luke fella met this Paul fella, what was awakened within him was this obsession. This obsession to meticulously document every single detail that he could find about the life of Jesus, about the growth of the church, about the movement of the Holy Spirit. And the conversion of this, he was an academic. This, we're not dealing with fishermen anymore, people. This guy was the cream of the academic crop and he had been convinced. And it elevated the status of the early church from a hoax cult to an undeniable fact. And we know this because in the Gospel of Luke, he addresses his letter to a high-level Roman official named Theophilus. So, so great was his conviction that the evidence 
of his research would prove to even the highest level of people that Jesus was truly the Lord, that he would send it targetedly to these people, these high-level people. Luke is the only Gentile to have a a book in the Bible, the only one. And better still, one-third of the New Testament actually we owe to Luke. The sheer detail that Luke wrote in. I think that's amazing. Do you know, Luke has as much writing in the New Testament as Paul. I think it's amazing. Represent Gentiles, yeah! Uh, I'm really settling into the Campbelltown culture, darling. <laughs> Woo! Ah, yeah. <laughs> ah. The name Luke means life, light giving, light giving. Huh. Or just did a, a Freudian slip, a play of words there, life giving. See, he was a physician which showed that he had this empathy towards people, this sensitivity towards people. But that was never enough for Luke. How do we know this? Because the moment he met Paul, he was willing to give up everything he'd been building up because he found out that true healing, that true light is through Jesus Christ. And his life, his personality, all of those things would never be the same because he'd found what he was searching for, the truth. The truth. I want to see that passion from the Luke's out there following this sermon from this day on. From this day on. Last strategy. John. Anyone like John? Anyone's favorite? Yeah, a few. I see you guys. Ah, I like John. John was a fisherman from a rich family. And he was a disciple of John the Baptist first. And the moment that John declared that Jesus was the Messiah, this John, this is the this John said, that's it, I'm done with you, John the Baptist. You're the ugly sister. No, 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 no. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but he said, why would I stick around with water when I can have the fire? Come on. <laughs> Don't settle for second best. Don't be someone else's disciple. Learn John's lesson. When you hear people declaring the Messiah, when you find truth, you follow it. You disciple to it. You bring yourself under it. Learn the lessons of John. Like many of us, John began his mission wanting to control and to judge. In Luke 9.49, he forbids the other Christians from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. In Matthew 20.20, Matthew 9.54 first, He petitions Jesus to let him call fire down from heaven 
on the opposition that they were encountering. <laughs> what faith, right? Misplaced faith. You know, Jesus had come so the fire didn't have to come down to scorch the people. John was learning. And this time, Matthew 20, 20, he has the audacity to ask that in heaven that he would be seated by the side of Jesus. And yet, for all of John's pride, he was the youngest disciple. He was part of an inner circle of only three disciples. He was called the disciple that Jesus loved. And at the Passover, on that final meal with Jesus, he did sit beside Jesus. And what's more, such was his love and the intimacy of their relationship that he lent his head on Jesus' chest. That's a challenging image, I think, for men. What do you reckon? Such was his love. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. We're all married to Jesus. There's got to be, I don't care how you got to reconcile it in your head, but you have to have that kind of intimacy with Jesus where you just want to cozy up. <laughs> That's real love. Real love. Love it. John wrote his book 80 years after Jesus' life. Unlike the other Gospels, his focus wasn't even on historical accuracy. It wasn't on which demographic it would appeal to the most. His focus was on the key themes of who Jesus was as a person. Truth, life, love. These are words from John. The word love appears 57 times in John, more than all the other Gospels. The word life appears 36 times, twice as much as all the other Gospels combined. Life in love. In fact, 90% of the material in the book of John cannot be found anywhere else in any of the other Gospels. 90%. That's how original it was. Why? Why was John like this? Why did, you know, he was the only one that also included the story about the washing of feet, the washing of the disciples' feet. And if you remember that we began the discussion talking about John's pride, imagine in that pride that experience of having your feet washed. It profoundly impacted on John. The, J, the name John means show favor. Through John's relationship with Jesus, he'd learnt to release control and judgment and to share the favor of being within Jesus' inner circle. See, the reason why he's talking about those key themes of Jesus' life is he had access to them. He was part of the inner circle. He saw behind the veil. He was talking about the inner motivations of Jesus himself. And he learnt that it wasn't about the favor that he could take for himself, but that he could share that opportunity that he'd been given, that hope that he had with the rest of the world and multiply through that. Share that love. By the end of John's life, 
He says in Revelation 1.9, your brother, this is how he talks about himself at the end of his life, after a complete transfiguration. Revelations 1.9, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He finally understood. Took a lifetime, but even John got there too. I hope that what's evident in all of these stories I told you today is that all of these unique personalities, that their purpose was only unlocked in relationship to the life of Jesus. It's the only way. You know that there's four Gospels. Why would you write the same book four times? And yet each of you is going to write a gospel in your ministry about how you testify, how your life testifies about Jesus' life. Four is not enough. <laughs> no way. It's the final week of the Serve campaign. I'll get you to stand to your feet. On the first week of the campaign, we talked to you about your shape, your spirit, your heart, your abilities, your personality, your experience. So hopefully you're getting a good sense of your shape now, starting to see where you fit. Last point I'll leave with you is this. I was thinking about shape and serving, and I was thinking about how much time I've wasted on this little game called Tetris. <gasps> In Tetris, different shapes fall down from the heavens and they begin to congest as you run out of time. Have you played this game? Everyone know what I'm talking about? Good, 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 good. And your aim is to align those shapes, to bring them into purpose and alignment. And at that point, they're raptured away. <laughs> And then the game speeds up. You know, the kingdom of heaven and the church is like a giant game of Tetris. I can see you in your rows, you know. As we fill these rows, we'll, rap we'll rapture them up. To find the shapes, to find where you fit, how you can serve the kingdom of God, to bring it into alignment. That's the role of the church and God's people. We're not people about chaos. Remember, God does that first, and then from there, he establishes order. He chooses a direction. He's chosen a direction for you. Let's partner with him to figure out what that is. Hey, I'll get you to close your eyes for a second. We've talked about it, different personalities encountering Jesus, so I'd call myself a fool if I didn't offer you an opportunity to encounter him today. I can tell you this, that who you are... Who God's made you to be will never unfold if not in the life of Jesus. I can tell you that. I can promise you that. So I want to offer you the opportunity that if right now, if you would like to discover the person you are supposed to be, the person you were made to be, just shoot your hand up. Just chuck it up. I see those hands. Yep, see that. Yep, see that. 
Good job, guys. Feels like such a small thing to shoot your hand up. But look at Mark. He shot his hand up and he was the first one to testify concerning Jesus. Love it. If you put your hand up, or if you just feel like joining us in this prayer, just repeat after me. Jesus, thank you. I need you in my life. What do you want for me? Tell me where to go. I'm going to do it. I love you. And give me your spirit to help me in the hard times. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Awesome, church. Give God a round of applause. How good is he?